we are applying biblical truth to everyday life. My name is Derek Brown, and I'm here today with Cliff McManus. We are both pastors and elders at Creekside Bible Church in Cupertino, California, and professors of theology at the Cornerstone Bible College and Seminary in Vallejo, California. And today we are in part two of a series on reading the news with wisdom. So we encourage you to go back and listen to episode number 55, where we lay down some basic principles on how to read the news, how to understand assumptions behind headlines, even talking about how much you should read the news. And then today we are actually going to get into looking at some articles, reading some headlines, and diving deeper into them and trying to assess them from a Christian worldview. And so before we get to that, though, I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, check out withallwisdom.org. That's where we host all of our uh, podcasts, where we have articles, and all of those resources are rooted in God's Word, and they are aimed at helping you grow in your relationship with the Lord. So we want you to check out the resources we have there. We recently installed a new uh, search bar, so you can search all of our resources with keywords, phrases, and things that you're looking for, and hopefully you will find what you're looking for there. So check out withallwisdom.org. Well, we're going to talk about some specific headlines and articles today. What we're doing is we're reading the news with wisdom. In our last episode, episode 60, uh, Cliff had a lot of important and helpful things to say about whether or not Christians should read the news, first of all, and how they should read the news, and how much news should we read. And we also talked about how news outlets are all working from a a bias or an an agenda of some sort. And we're not suggesting that you can't come to the truth on what is actually happening in the news, but you must be aware of where you're receiving your news from and what outlet is, is dispensing it to you and to be aware of those things. So now we want to address a few specific articles. And um, one of the things that Cliff mentioned in the last episode was that God has given us a stewardship, and we can't, we can't possibly be interested in or engage in every piece of news that's out there. Um, there's news from all over the globe, all over the country, and we can't possibly engage in all of it, nor should we, because God has given us a specific stewardship. He's given us our work, He's given us our family, He's given us our church, He's given us our community, and that is that all of those things take up most of our, our time and should take up most of our time and our energy and our focus. And so as I've walked through even some of these articles, I, I recognize that these issues that I was drawn to in these these headlines here and these articles that I pulled out, I was drawn to them because they have to do with shepherding people here at CBC. So we're going to look at some articles on work. We're going to look at some articles or an article on science as religion. And then we'll finally look at an article that uh, is from a lady who switched careers from psychologist to biblical counselor. So each of these categories have to do specifically with how I'm thinking about shepherding the uh, folks at CBC. And so I'm, I'm not interested in every last bit of, of news that you could find on a major news outlet. In fact, what we noticed last time was there are some news outlets that provide you with so-called news that's not newsworthy at all, and some of it is just flat-out immoral and not helpful for our sanctification. So we do need to be selective, and uh, that will be determined often by the the stewardship that God has, has given you and entrusted you with. So I want to first talk about a theology of work, that's where all of these articles I'm about to reference, that's where they would all fit under as a theology of work. And we've talked about this before. We talk about it a fair amount. Uh, We've done an episode on 
retirement. Uh, we've uh, and then we've kind of sprinkled in uh, talking about work in various other episodes because it's a, it's just a big part of life and it's actually a, a big part of the Bible, believe it or not. And so these are things that I'm interested in, and I'm shepherding folks who are young professionals, and they are in the the prime of their working life. And so these are important issues. And so one of the the things that I noted here as I was walking through these these articles was something called the Great Resignation. Have you heard about the Great Resignation? No. Well, the Great Resignation is apparently something that was occurring during COVID. I remember this coming up, and people were re- resigning from work. They were there. You had a you had a few different reasons. Either um, people were being uh, taken off on site duties, and and now they only needed to work remotely, and so some weren't liking that, so they're leaving work. Some uh, who are older had believe they had enough money to retire, so they're going to retire early now that the the pandemic has hit us and we're there with the major shutdowns. Others who were not ready to retire thought they could retire early and like and we're talking a lot earlier they thought they had enough money to to last them especially now or especially when we had this stimulus money coming in and people just totally misjudged the economic situation and they they quit working and that kind of coincided it seemed with people's just by and large having a a dissatisfaction with work. So they were having a dissatisfaction with work. They thought I had enough money. Here comes the pandemic and the lockdown and people started quitting work, just flat out quitting. It's called the great resignation. Wow. And uh, I'm just going to read this uh, quote from a, an article uh, in Esquire magazine. So the media hype around the so-called great resignation has been a constant drumbeat with almost gleeful reports on Americans breaking free of employers liberated from the drudgery of in-office meetings, commuting, and the stress of work. Stories about stories abound about mid-career professionals and those in their 20s quitting jobs to freelance, launch startups, or not work at all. Even among those who stayed in their jobs, many headed to warmer climates to set up virtual workplaces. And then he goes on to talk about, uh, for those 65 and older, COVID led to the largest decrease in decades for that group participating in the labor force. And uh, But then he goes on in the article to to, to, to note that actually <laughs> what happened was in, in, that people started to realize they didn't like not working as much as they thought they would like not working. And people started to come back to work a lot quicker than folks, than, than people thought they would. And he says... Uh, Maybe the great resignation isn't so great after all. And he goes on to talk about the reasons that people gave for why they wanted to come back. One person, uh, or he says, uh, some people are rejoining the labor force out of economic necessity. In other words, people are going back to work because they need money. Uh, Then he says, some have decided a virtual existence is not for them. And I think that, a lot of us saw that coming, that you just, that existing in a remote environment where it is just you and your computer 10 hours a day, 60 hours a week, or 50 hours a week, whatever it might be, that's not going to work for the long term. We need social interaction. In fact, work is most satisfying when we're working with others. And then there's 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 certain jobs where that you may not be working with others as much, but f- for the most part, those who are found themselves in these remote capacities we're finding. I'd like to get back to working with others. Um, Others learned that they needed, quoting now, they needed the meaning that working a regular job gives them. 
So they needed to go back. They just they realized without the routine, without the work of completing projects and accomplishing something for an employer or a company or for others, without that, they just lacked meaning in their life. And I wanted to just see what uh, you thought. Oh, I'm, I'm going to read this one more and then ask you what you thought about some of these examples and reasons why people are going back. And then this person said, after almost two years, I'm ready for reentry. I miss the camaraderie, stimulation, and feeling of accomplishment that work provides. So, Cliff, what would you say, just hearing that from a, judging these statements from a, a Christian worldview? Yeah, I immediately thought, well, the Bible addresses this clearly, and it addresses the foundational issues. Yeah. And for you and I, as you're reading the solutions of why people want to go back to work. It's a no-brainer for yep. us that right. it's the way God made us. Uh, we were made in God's image. God is a social being. God yep. made us as social beings. We need people. We yep. cannot live in isolation. Yep. That's, it goes against our very nature of the way God made us. So that's fundamental. Mm-hmm. It's uh, They say, I don't know because I haven't been to prison, but <laughs> one of the most brutal ways you can punish somebody right. and yeah. – force them into insanity is put them in solitary confinement where they're not around another human being. That's right. Because that goes against their very nature. Yep. So we need people. Yeah. Regarding that prison scenario, I've seen uh, news stories about men in isolation who will try to attack and get in fight with guards just so they can have some social interaction. Wow. Because that's what we were made for. And what's interesting about this is from a Christian perspective, I remember you and I talking about this early on in the COVID lockdowns. We knew that something wasn't right here. You can't lock people uh, out from work and from that social interaction. And it's not because we were smarter than anybody else. It's because we knew what uh, God taught in his word about uh, work and about us being made in his image and being social beings. Yeah. That's rooted in the great commandment when God created Adam and Eve. It was yep. be fruitful, multiply, but also uh, rule over the earth, which right. is inherent. It's working is inherent, uh, innate to being human, and a mandate from God Almighty. We that's part of our very purpose is to be productive, to work as God's mediators here on the earth. Uh, that's reaffirmed in the Mosaic Covenant, where human beings, men, are commanded to work. It's commanded in the New Testament. You've written about it and. Mm-hmm. To command somebody not to work or to keep them from working yeah. is actually evil. Yeah, absolutely. It is evil. It, it is. Yep. Yep. And uh, it, and I remember thinking, you know, maybe people are concerned with speaking out about this because they don't want to be viewed as those who are uh, up in arms about the economy. They don't want to be viewed as as people are only concerned about about money. And uh, so. I, I actually took the approach of, okay, you don't want to talk about the, the money aspect. Well, let's talk about the work aspect, right? God has made us to work. And when we're, and that being a, a fundamental part of creation, when we're being kept from doing that, it is what you just said. It's evil. Um, we are made to work. And so that well, whole, you, uh, sorry. Let me comment on the, the, one of the reasons you gave was people felt productive or they needed a purpose. Yeah. And Chuck Colson wrote, a couple of good books, and one of them that he wrote, he was the one that had the ministry to prisons. Uh, he was in the Nixon administration, mm-hmm. and he was evil, and then he got saved and yeah. had this wonderful ministry to prisoners for decades and wrote a couple of really good books. But one of them is about work in the Christian ethic to mm-hmm. work, and he gives a, a story there from, I think it was the Nazi concentration camps, mm-hmm. 
um, were however long they were in there for two to three years, a couple of specific ones, where some of the prisoners were given opportunities to do work, mm. menial work, like sure. carrying bricks from one end of the yard to the other end of the yard yeah. all day long. Yeah. And they were healthier mm. and lived longer with a sense of hope as opposed to other prisoners, even in the same concentration camps, who had no physical responsibilities whatsoever wow. and they weren't asked to work at all wow. and they they died off quickly naturally were depressed mm-hmm. and the point was that he was just showing and illustrating i think it was a great point that yeah uh, being productive and working is absolutely in our very nature as human beings yeah. and the way god designed us yeah well that leads into to this next article then this article's in from the Harvard Business Review and it's uh, entitled when quiet quitting is worse than the real thing so there's the term or the the trend of great resignation now there's something else growing out of that or alongside of it parallel with it called quiet quitting have you heard of quiet quitting no i haven't i am getting an education today <laughs> So I'll start, I'll quote the beginning of this article. It says, while much has been written about the great resignation, a new term has emerged to describe an increasingly common alternative to resigning, quiet quitting. Driven by many of the same underlying factors as actual resigna- re- resignations, quiet quitting refers to opting out of tasks beyond one's assigned duties and or becoming less psychologically invested in work. Quiet quitters continue to fulfill their responsibilities, but they're less willing to engage in activities known as citizenship behaviors. Uh, No more staying late, showing up early, or attending non-mandatory meetings. And so what people are doing, this quiet quitting, is people are deliberately doing the least amount of work possible. Sure, they're going to fulfill their core responsibilities, but that's it. No going the extra mile, no staying late, no going beyond the call of duty. I am uh, only going to do the absolute minimum. And this is obviously, as you could imagine, this has become a problem uh, in the current workforce and for companies because you can't sustain a, a healthy company with people doing just the absolute bare minimum. And so one thing this did bring up is, uh, and this is what the article brings up, is the, this this idea that, of course, this isn't good from the employee side, but employers also need to uh, readjust and, and recognize, okay, is there something here where we can make the working conditions better and can we invest in our employees better and these things like that? So he goes on to give actual ideas for employers. But the reason I wanted to bring up the quiet quitting issue, and this is, goes back to shepherding our people, is that Christians should be never be known as quiet quitters. This is not something that's acceptable for the Christian work ethic. Uh, we are to Colossians 3.23, do all our work heartily as unto the Lord. And there are um, times when we will need to go the extra mile in order to to serve our employer, in order to to do work excellently that will bless others. We shouldn't be seen as those who do the absolute very least. And of course, there is a balance. Um, we also don't devote ourselves in an ungodly amount of, of hours and time and energy to our work. That Some people do that, and that's not right either. But there also can't be this idea of quiet quitting, doing the absolute minimum, and uh, and failing to, to work hard. And so I, that's why I brought up this issue of, of quiet quitting, which runs kind of parallel with the great resignation. And uh, any thoughts about this? This concept of quiet quitting. 
Yeah, that's um, you said. There's a needs to be a balance, and that's that's key. The balance because you and I, Derek, where we live here in the Silicon Valley, we've got um, Google headquarters, we've got Apple headquarters, we've got YouTube here, we've got Facebook, all these big tech companies. Yeah. You got Tesla, Elon Musk, and his work ethic that he d- demands from his employees is right. hardcore labor. Yeah, are you hardcore? Are you willing to give seventy, eighty hours a week to your employer? Well, that's that's kind of the standard here. Yeah, if you're at Google, so yeah. we've got you know we've had members in our church where they're family men, you know they're married, they got a wife, they got children, and they're say they're working at Google or Apple, mm-hmm. where they have these standards of they expect you to be there seventy, eighty hours sure. a week. Sure. It's your life. Yeah. That's your social organization as well. They don't recognize the need for church or family. Right. Uh, that's why they provide everything on site. Hey, you, you don't need to go home. We've got uh, a rec room here. We've got a mm-hmm. kitchen here. We've mm-hmm. got baby care here. We've mm-hmm. got entertainment here. We've got televisions here. Uh, and so it's all consuming on the one. So that that's one thing we've been exposed to in some of our members trying to balance. Yeah. How do I How do I be a faithful respected worker at Google or whatever it is, and at the same time have the balance of giving proper stewardship to my marriage and right. to my children and right. the ministry at church. Right. That's been that's a real problem. Yeah. Um, then it sounds like the pendulum is swinging, mm-hmm. which it always does, right. to this sissy quiet quitting, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> the bare minimum, Yeah. Um, which, again, is just... Uh, undermining the basic biblical uh, ethic of that great verse you just quoted out of scripture that yeah. Christians of Christians should be the best employers at any given right. job in right. any industry. Right. They're the hardest workers. Yeah. They have the most integrity. Right. They respect their boss. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't be looking for being minimalists. Yeah. So what you're saying is that a, a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview addresses both sides of the issue. The one issue is the poor work ethic of quiet quitting, and the other side is giving an inordinate amount of, of time and energy to one's work, which is sometimes demanded. You mentioned Elon Musk. He tweeted the other day that this is his life. He wakes up, he goes to work, he comes home, he goes to bed, he wakes up the next morning and goes to work, and he does that seven days a week. Wow. And that's what he expects of his employees. Yes. <laughs> and... uh we have something to say about that, yeah. don't we? That uh, work is important. It's, it's essential to our, our personhood, but there's more to life than work. There yeah. is relationship. There's ministry. There is marriage. There is children. There is uh, serving others. So, yeah. yeah, he's neglecting the most important thing in the world. Yep. A relationship with the God of the Bible, obviously, yep. and the church. Yep. Uh, but he's gaining the whole world. Yeah. He is gaining the whole world. Is there... Didn't Jesus say something? Jesus about that? talked about that. You could gain the whole world and lose your soul. Yeah. Well, so um, leading into that, then is this an uh, uh, article which was originally on Fortune magazine? You know, I mentioned back earlier that in that last episode that I don't go on Yahoo News, and that is true. But I did get this article off Yahoo News, but it was originally on Fortune magazine because hmm. um, I was looking on it because Fortune magazine wouldn't let me wouldn't let me have it. It was hidden behind a paywall. So, guess who had it? Yahoo News. So, uh, this is the, the title of this article. The Great Remorse Takes Over the Great Resignation as Most Workers Who Quit Their Jobs Are Having a Hard Time Finding a New One. And so, this um, uh, idea of the Great Resignation, this leaving work in mass, it didn't work out as well as 
people thought it would. And the end of the article says uh, a March 22 Harris poll found that over a third of respondents regretted quitting and and said their that their new role in their new role their work life balance had declined that their new job was different than what they were led to expect and that they actually missed the culture of their old job. Wow. So just a reminder uh, to not get caught up in the grass is always greener kind of thinking to to work hard where you're at to be thankful for your job. I think that's an important thing to learn. To it just is. be thankful and content. Yeah, so, absolutely. I'm not saying you can't go find a new job, but boy, you have to be wise in how you go about go about that. Um, last thing on this issue of work, last article on this issue of work, one now from NPR says, America, we have a problem. Pe- people aren't feeling engaged with their work. This is along the same lines of what we've already talked about. Um, and it's actually, this is actually an interview with somebody, and it's a transcript of the interview. And um, just to pull out a few more important or a few important points here. Uh, talked about it quite quitting in this exchange, people doing the minimum required. But then this was interesting. Uh, this person says that uh, the younger generation, younger generation, the millennial generation specifically, is focusing on mental wellness as as a key to increasing worker engagement and retention. So the company's recognizing that mental wellness is important to this younger generation because this is what these companies are hearing from their workers. Quote, I still want to engage in the workplace, but I want to do it in a way that is convenient and palatable to my lifestyle. So noticing that here, coming out of the pandemic, this, all these things kind of coalescing here. You have a younger working, this younger generation entering the the workforce, working for a few years, and, and now realizing that they don't like the work as much as they thought they would, and they want now to find work that is more convenient and more palatable to their lifestyle. And so now companies are having to work through these these issues and hiring and, and so on and attracting workers. But I just found that to be an interesting way of phrasing it. That That's kind of a self-centered way of, of thinking about work, and I think we would say, biblically, when you think about work, you want to first think about yourself as, as a servant to, to others, to your employer, to fellow employees, to the company, to others, ultimately, because you're creating a product or a good or a service, whatever it is, to, to be of benefit to others, and to now be putting these conditions on employment, saying it needs to be, quote, convenient and palatable to your lifestyle, uh, of course, there, uh, we talked earlier about balance, work-life balance, but there's also a way of approaching work that is inherently selfish as well. And we want to encourage our uh, listeners and remind them that uh, we're to first to think of ourselves as servants yeah. uh, to others. Absolutely. Servant. Um, that's how we should view work is, like you said, it's, first of all, we're providing a service to someone else by virtue of what we do. Then Paul says in Ephesians, one of the reasons we work in Ephesians 4 is to make money, mm-hmm. but not to spend it on ourselves yeah. necessarily. Yeah. To make money, not to think about retirement, but to make money that we might share it with yeah. others who are in need. Yeah. So even the end result of work, the byproduct, the income, we're being other-oriented yeah. with it in our worldview. And so, again, the Bible just speaks directly to that issue, that whole worldview of that article. And 
uh, and the other biblical principles, we aren't supposed to be finding our identity in our job or our mm. work as Christians. Yeah. Can't do that. Uh, it fades. It's superficial. It's shallow. It satisfies only for a time. I, I actually know professional athletes who, after they stopped playing their sport, lost all their identity. Yeah. They didn't know what to do after retiring. Yeah. It's like, oh, I was a professional NFL player and won a Super Bowl now. Now what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Now that you can't play football mm-hmm. anymore, if you don't, if you're not rooted in Christ, right, you've lost your identity. Yep. All right. Next uh, article. This one's entitled "Why Carl Sagan Believed That Science Is a Source of Spirituality." Carl Sagan, obviously a famous uh, scientist, cosmologist, and um, this actual this article is actually a an excerpt from a book called "The Romance of Reality" by a uh, man named Bobby Azarian, and he's going to go on to talk about how science actually provides a kind of spirituality, and he's going to argue for a universal religion flowing out of science. You heard, you heard that correctly. And so I want to actually back up a little bit and talk about a biblical passage. Romans 1 talks about this very thing, uh, that Romans 1, 18 through 32 is a description of humanity at large and how humanity at large has rejected God, rejected the creator, and has rejected him and exchanged the glory of the creator for the glory, the so-called glory of the creature. And so now we worship the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Uh, Paul writes this, Romans 1, 24, uh, therefore, well, I'll actually back up. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their uh, hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we should expect... This kind of article. It, this it was a, it was a stunning article, but in some ways it was not surprising at all. And um, I'll just want I'm going to read a few quotes and see what this you is think. An NPR. No, now this one is called uh, from a uh, website called BigThink.com. Big Think. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, you'll it, it's not one I I would recommend in terms of edific, edifying material. It's you're going to find pieces like this on there, but I just wanted to to, to point this one out because of how blatantly religious it is. And we were made to worship. If you're not worshiping the one true God, you're going to worship the one of the, something in the created order. Yep. That's that is axiomatic. Yep. There's no two ways around it. All right. He says this, quote, many assume that when you get down to the nuts and bolts of nature, a spiritual worldview is simply incompatible with a scientific one. While that is a common assumption, it couldn't be more wrong. Spirituality simply refers to a sense of connection to something larger than oneself, and it has nothing to do with the supernatural. To quote Carl Sagan, science is the only is not only compatible with spirituality, it is a profound source of spirituality. And so he's going to go on to talk about how science and the, what he calls self-awareness we all need to have a, a self-awareness of everything going on and, and of, of ourselves and of all other people because we are all part of one big system. The universe is all part of one big system. And he, he quotes this gentleman who says, if the universe is not meaningless, what is its meaning? And I just found that to be an interesting statement because uh, 
if you are working from a naturalistic worldview, I, I don't know how you ground meaning. This gentleman tries to, he says, for me, this meaning is to be found in the structure of the universe, which happens to be such as to produce thought by way of the life and mind. In th- thought, in turn, is a faculty whereby the universe can reflect upon itself, discover its own structure, and apprehend such eminent entities as truth, beauty, and good- goodness, and love. Such is the meaning of the universe as I see it. Now, I'm not actually entirely sure what that means, but what he is trying to do is root meaningfulness of our existence and of the universe somewhere in the universe itself, and he says in the structure of the universe, and he believes that there's this kind of universal thought, you might say, so that the universe can reflect upon itself. And again, I just see that as kind of a nonsensical statement from a a Christian worldview. I'm not sure you can have any of these things, truth, beauty, and goodness. In fact, I'm sure you can't uh, without a transcendent God who who defines these things. Right. Uh, But he goes on to say, let's see here, let's, uh, I'm going to take it right here to this amazing (laughs) uh, statement. He says, um, uh, therefore, while nations must retain their individual identities, remember that their strength and their strength and diversity, they must also align common interests, which produces synergy through minimalizing conflict and promoting cooperation. So he's talking about just a kind of one world order coming together. Uh, optimal complexity and computational capacity comes from a balance of diversity or differentiation and integration or connection. To align interests, we must have a common worldview. Sagan said, a a religion, old or new, that stressed the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be able to draw forth reserves of reverence and awe hardly tapped by conventional faiths. Sooner or later, such a religion will emerge. And um, he goes on to say, and then I'm going to get your thoughts on this. He says, since we are all part of an interdependent whole, this one big system, our goal should be to try to achieve the greatest good for the greatest number of people. While the dream of a cosmic religion might sound hopelessly idealistic to some, I do believe it is a supremely reasonable and attainable worldview, one that any enlightened society will eventually move in the direction of. And I'm going to stop right there to just get your thoughts about what I've, I've mentioned so far in this, this article. Is that Carl Sagan or him quoting... Carl Sagan. He quoted Carl Sagan when he said a religion old or new. So then, and then Mm -hmm. he says, sooner or later, such a religion will emerge. And then I'm sorry, I should have closed the quotes there. And then he went on to say, since we're all part of an interdependent whole, he believes that this cosmic religion is, is entirely possible. Yeah. Well, he's mixing several things together just in that one paragraph. I heard totalitarianism that, uh, what is best for the greatest number of people. Mm-hmm. That's old. That's mm-hmm. nothing new at all. Yeah. Uh, we're all interconnected. That's pantheism yep. or panentheism or yep. finding some kind of a deity within the creation itself or naturalism. Um, so all of this has been posited and believed and yep. practiced before yep. all the way back to the Greek pagans all throughout history. So he's, he's not spewing anything new whatsoever, mm-hmm. just putting nuanced, fancy, scientific vernacular words to it right to make it sound new and fresh but it's all it all goes back to the root of exactly what you said in Romans 1 Paul made it clear there's either worship of the true god and we were born created to worship and if you're not worshiping the true god inevitably you will be worshiping the creation yeah 
whatever that manifestation might be. Yep. And that's what's at the root of this thing. Absolutely. Uh, Carl, I got a quote since you brought up Carl Sagan, just yeah. in memory of Carl Sagan. Those many of you listeners probably are too young to even know who Carl Sagan is. He was the Richard Dawkins of his day back in the 70s. Yeah. Very popular. Had his own TV show, Cosmos. Cosmos, C-O-S-M-O-S. Anyway, and he's, it, it was kind of like Star Trek where Captain Kirk starts out at the beginning of every episode. It's five-year mission, you know. But mm-hmm. that was fiction. Right. But on Cosmos with Carl Sagan, it wasn't fiction. It was him talking about his science, which was a religion. And he, and he always made this comment, his opening uh, spiel. He said, the cosmos, meaning the physical universe and creation, sun, moon, and stars, the cosmos is all that is. Mm-hmm or was, or ever will be. He said that every episode. Literally ascribing uh, divine attributes to the creation. Yes. And and he's kind of plagiarizing from the Bible. Yeah. You know, like like (laughs) Revelation chapter 1 when it refers to God in those terms. Wow, yep. Who was, who is, and whoever will be. Um, That's, that was Carl Sagan. Yep. Pagan. To the core. Yet worshiping. Carl Sagan or Carl Pagan? Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Carl Sagan. Worshiping the Well, I appreciate Carl Sagan being honest, saying that, you know, science and trying to say his scientism is not religious. When actually, he said, no, science. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not incompatible with spirituality. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, science is a source of spirituality, one of the greatest sources of spirituality. Right. Thank you for your honesty, Carl Sagan. Science is religion. You agree with Romans 1. Yeah, that's right. All right, last one for me. Um, This one comes from the Gospel Coalition. Gospel Coalition has some good stuff on there. Some some of the stuff uh, we wouldn't endorse completely, but uh, a number of the things are uh, helpful on there. I've written a number of articles for the Gospel Coalition. Uh, This one's entitled, Why I Switch Careers from Psychologist to Biblical Counselor. Uh, It's by Beth Clays. I think I'm saying her name right. I hope I am. But she talks about her work. She worked in the field of psychology for a decade. Uh, she worked in a private practice, taught in a graduate psychology program. She loved her work, her clients, her students, her colleagues. Uh, she was respected in her community as a professor and psychologist. But here's the kicker. But I left my job in psychology to start and lead a biblical counseling ministry at a church across the country. Why? And she goes on to talk about prior to this shift, she had a kind of caricature of biblical counseling. We've talked about that before. People uh, will often have a caricature. They think it's un- not compassionate or they think it's simplistic or it's, it doesn't really work. And, um, and that was where she was at. And then something happened. She said this. Um, she said, when my pastor talked about the value of biblical counseling, I'd condescend. It's cute you th- that you think you can understand mental health struggles with the Bible. I didn't judge harshly. I just thought biblical counseling was ignorant. But 10 years later, I think I was the ignorant one. And w- the reason the breakthrough came through starting to see the foundation upon which psychology was built. That is, she goes on in the article, she says, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Namely, that Psychology, modern psychology and psychiatry is built upon naturalistic foundations. You have a totally different anthropology than you do in Christianity. You have purely materialistic anthropology. You don't have a uh, dualism with an immaterial mind and a physical body, a physical brain. And so she said 
because of that, uh, these constructs and models for helping people, uh, quoting, built on we're built on a world where God doesn't exist. People, self and others, are our best hope, and personal happiness is the highest good. And she just um, started to really question all the kind of basic premises and principles and aims of, of psychology. And uh, she said this, she said, disentangling humanistic and naturalistic philosophies from the practice of psychology was much more difficult than I imagined. Secular psychology presents itself as neutral. It doesn't assume that there should be any conflict with religion or Christianity, but the study of the soul isn't philosophically neutral. More than any fields, this is a this is a huge statement. We've said this before. More than any field, psychology is answering the same questions as religion. Who are we? What's wrong with us? What will help us? How do we get there? Once I saw that, I couldn't unsee it, and my faith ultimately changed the way I wanted to practice. And I just I bring that up because we've talked about biblical counseling on this podcast, we've talked about psychology, and here's a, uh, a lady here who made that shift because she saw the incompatibility between psychology and Christian beliefs. And so, I, that was an, it's an encouraging read. Uh, it was encouraging to hear how she had made that change, and now she's practicing. No, I forgot to read the last part of it here, actually. She says, she says this. She says, at the very end, she says, that's why I have the best job in the world as a biblical counselor. Nice. She loves what she's doing now. Mm. Um, and so she's serving people, helping people uh, biblically, and just her recognizing and, and articulating that psychology is itself a religion. It's answering the same questions as yep. religion, and yet it's coming from a totally different uh, foundation as than Christianity. And Christians need to be aware of that. They do. You mentioned it as naturalistic uh, got a brief definition in case people don't know what that oh, is. Oh, sure. Naturalistic, just a naturalistic philosophy or naturalistic uh, approach to any kind of discipline like psychology it just means that you disregard the possibility of the supernatural. Yep. That you are you don't include God in your framework, yeah. God or his word or anything like that. And usually that then means that when it comes to anthropology, that the human being is only physical, and that the mind is a product of the, the brain. You don't have a category for the immaterial mind or the immaterial soul. It's all physical. Yeah, which doesn't make any sense. Everything's right. material and physical. And how do you even define mind right. in a material way? Right. It would have to be identical with the brain. Right. The actual organ. Right. So if you have mental disease, you actually have a brain disease. Right. Right. Because they, they don't have a category to deal with the immaterial. Mm -hmm. and which is precisely why you have the category now of, of, of mental illness and why some have tried so hard to attach mental illness, so-called mental illness, to uh, uh, brain diseases, which they haven't been able to do. But Yeah, or hormonal imbalances because hormon yep. they're trying to make it physical. Right, exactly. Yeah. So just a, uh, just a helpful reminder that uh, – Ideas have consequences, and, and uh, when we're talking about things like the news or talking about psychology or science, we're not talking about uh, disciplines that are purely objective, just yep. dispensing objective facts. We're talking about disciplines, news sources that are coming with a bias, with a w worldview and an agenda, and Christians have to be discerning as they are reading the news. Examine everything carefully. That's right. Hold fast to that which is good.
Well, Cliff, do you have any last words to, to say to our listeners by way of encouragement or exhortation about reading the news with wisdom? Yes. Uh, I have much more appreciation of that that old Sunday school song that you sing to your kids of be careful little eyes what you see. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of truth to that uh, because that refers to the intake of information. And uh, when God made human beings in his image, uh, a big part of that was that we are intellectual thinking beings. Yeah. Um, and we have to and, – and the heart or the key, one of the keys to sanctification is guarding our thinking, disciplining our thinking, protecting our thinking. Yeah. And we have control over that. Yeah. And we have to be deliberate about it. We can't be passive Christians when it comes to what we allow to enter into our thought life right. and what we think about, what we meditate upon, what – TV shows we watch, movies we watch, news we read, conversations mm-hmm. we have. This is at the heart of Christian sanctification, which allows us to grow more and more like Christ to please yeah. him. That's right. Well, thanks, Cliff. This is a very encouraging and edifying discussion. And we encourage you to listen to episode 60 if you haven't already. This is a two-part uh, uh, series, and we had uh, both 60 and 61. We covered a lot of the principles foundational principles in 60, and we talked about specifics here in 61. So we encourage you to listen to both, and we thank you for listening. Please check out withallwisdom.org where you can find our podcast and other articles on this subject. In fact, on the subjects that we just got done talking about, we have more articles and resources on every topic we covered today. And until next time, keep seeking the Lord and His Word. Mm-hmm.